if, if I could do one thing differently as far, if, if you're someone who wants to scale your business, I think one of the most important things is structuring. So organizational structure, just making sure that everything's written. If you have someone who's working for you, everything needs to be contractually written. Welcome to the Barbend Podcast, where we talk to the smartest athletes, coaches, and minds from around the world of strength. I'm your guest host, Jake Foley, and this podcast is presented by Barbend.com. Steffi Cohen is one of the owners of Hybrid Performance Method. She holds a doctorate in physical therapy, a CSCS, and has broken a total of 11 all-time powerlifting world records throughout her career. Additionally, Steffi is currently ranked number two in the world for holding the all-time highest Wilk score with a remarkable 698.11. In today's episode, I sit down with Steffi and chat on her upbringing in the sport of powerlifting and her mindset that has gotten her here. But more importantly, how she has helped hybrid performance methods scale along with tips for other business owners looking to do so. If you're trying to grow your business, then I hope you love and resonate with this episode. As always, we're incredibly thankful that you listen to the Barbin Podcast. So if you haven't already, be sure to leave a rating and review of the Barbin Podcast in your app of choice. Every month, we give away a box full of Barbin swag to one of our listeners who leaves a rating and review. What's going on, guys? So we are down in Miami, Florida with the Barbin Podcast, and we are here with Steffi Cohen. Hi, Steffi. Great to have you on. Hey, Jake. Thanks for having me. Um, I know that you've shared your origin story now multiple times on different platforms and different podcasts, but for any potential reader, listener, and so forth who doesn't know you, I would love to hear your origin story, how you got started in powerlifting, and just kind of your overall journey and strength. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll give you a SparkNotes version of it. This, it it's, this is arguably the hardest question for me because I never know how much detail to include, but I guess if you want me to go into more detail on any point of the story, you can let me know. I was born and raised in Caracas, Venezuela. I played soccer my entire life from the time I was about eight years old. And sports were always kind of part of my identity, kind of the thing that brought most happiness to my life and the thing I identified the most with just being an athlete. I played for the national uh, Venezuelan soccer team. We actually were the first female uh, professional soccer team in Venezuela since, I don't know, soccer in Venezuela at that point in time wasn't developed. There wasn't a lot into it, or there wasn't a lot of people interested, and we had no structure. Um, Which, by the way, they're actually killing it, the team now. But anyway, so I moved to the States with the intention of becoming a professional soccer player, obviously. Uh, I got a scholarship at San Diego State University to play soccer. And my plan was to kind of, you know, have a better chance at uh, having a higher level education and more quality education, but also, you know, see where I could take my soccer. But moving to the States and being 17 years old and being away from my family and my coach and all of that was difficult because I felt like I had no um, no support. And, you know, when you're 17 and things start getting getting tough and you add a bunch of other variables like adjusting to a culture, learning a new language, being tested in that new language, having to make friends and kind of like find your your your, your place socially, um, 
it could it got very lonely because I I felt like uh, I was just juggling too many things and not really doing any of them very well. Um, and the one that consumed most of my time was soccer. You know, we trained multiple times per day. Training sessions were really long and hard. And um, I decided that maybe I needed to focus more on, on my school because soccer was a little bit um, uncertain, whereas I knew that by getting good grades and getting a good education, preparing myself for the future, that could potentially yield more benefits in the long run. So I decided to stop playing soccer, decided to move to Miami because it was closer to home. It's only like a two and a half hour flight to Venezuela. Um, and also culturally, I mean, this is, this is pretty much like South America here in Miami. So it felt a lot more like home and I just felt like it was a better environment for me at the time. I always say that in hindsight, like looking back at that time in my life, if I feel like if I had half the mental strength and just the kind of perspective and attitude that I have nowadays, I would have never quit. Like I would have definitely found a way to persevere and go through, go through that. So that for me was a lesson that, you know, when things get rough, you, you can't just, you can't, you should, well, I mean, I guess you can, but I think that you should just try to write it out and try to see what comes out of, out of it. Um, so yeah, moved to Miami. Then again, felt a bit lost as far as my identity goes. You know, I stopped playing soccer, wasn't an athlete anymore, and I thought I would be okay with that. But I started just looking for other sports to play because I felt like I felt really empty and I felt like I needed, I don't know, I needed to, I wasn't ready to not be an athlete anymore. So just did a bunch of different sports, half marathons, triathlons, I rode bikes, I did, tried skateboarding, I did, what else I did, took kickboxing, boxing classes, and then eventually landed in CrossFit. I went to school with Noah Olson. And he was the one that introduced me to CrossFit. They had a Canes CrossFit club, it's called. So it was really close to campus and we would meet every day. We would train. I love the competitive aspect of CrossFit. It really made me feel like an athlete. Um, and anyone who's tried CrossFit who was an athlete before can, I think, can attest to that. Um, where, you know, everyone really cares about what time they're getting, what weight they're moving. The coaches are really encouraging. And I really love that uh, competitive atmosphere. And from there, just kind of trying to uh, improve my different skills for CrossFit. The first one, the most evident one for me that needed work was weightlifting, lifting weights, because I had never lifted weights in my life. Even though I was in the national soccer team in Venezuela, we didn't have access to a to a gym. It's not a prestigious thing to to be in the national soccer team in Venezuela. We played in a dirt field. Uh, and if we weren't playing in a dirt field, we were playing on the beach, kind of like for our conditioning, but we didn't really have gym and weights and anything like that. So, you know, I felt I, I needed to get stronger and I needed to improve my snatch clean and jerk. Hired a weightlifting coach, got into that, did it for about three or four years at a pretty high level, competed in states, uh, American Open. And, well, I didn't actually end up competing at the American Open, but I qualified. Um, and then got into grad school and getting into grad school, man, I feel like my, my spark notes story ended up being way longer. Sorry guys, bear with me. I'm, I'm, I'm at the tail end, man, tail end. It's almost over. I promise. So got into grad school, really hard to balance Olympic weightlifting in grad school because weightlifting demands so much of you, both from a focus standpoint and from just the amount of time that you have to dedicate to really be competitive. So again, it was kind of a similar story to when I was doing CrossFit where I wanted to improve on a particular skill. In this case, it was strength. I thought that if I got better in squat bench deadlift that I could improve my weightlifting 
after I'm, you know, after I'm in, after grad school, but I ended up just switching to powerlifting and staying there. Interesting. Well, thank you for the <laughs> elaborate spark notes. Um, that's really interesting. So my question for you is when you got the idea for hybrid, when was that and where did that start in all of that spark note story? So I think first, yeah, I met Hayden after my first semester of grad school and, um, he had, been traveling in the U.S. around that time, trying to network. He owned a, another company called Working Against Gravity. And um, that was kind of like the first taste, or not taste, but the first time I was exposed to and met someone who owned an online business. I didn't really understand much about it. Um, and I was really shocked at the scalability of the business and really how much money you can make from it. I didn't really know it was possible. So that was interesting to me. He, after a few months of us dating, he decided to uh, sell his shares in that company. And we started just talking among each other, just trying to find something else to do for him, mainly because I was in school. I, I couldn't really commit 100% of my time to anything else. And um, at that time, we were training hybrid. We were training Olympic weightlifting and powerlifting, doing some bodybuilding to look good. You know, that was kind of how we were training. And we would always get a few questions, not a ton. I had about 3,000 followers at the time. Hayden had about 12,000 followers at the time, and I thought I was dating a celebrity. And um, yeah, so we got a few questions about our style of training. How do you incorporate Olympic weightlifting and powerlifting and some bodybuilding into a one into one training program? And um, decided to give it a go. I remember Hayden coming, Hayden, Hayden telling me that he thinks that we have something interesting, that he thinks that we could sell a hybrid program. And I, I couldn't understand why he thought that anyone would want to buy a training program from us out of everyone else that's offering programming. Um, but he seemed really confident on the idea. And, you know, my job as a girlfriend is to be supportive. So I said, you know, I support whatever you want to do. I'll, I'll be all in. If you think this is a good idea, I have, I have no idea how any of this works, but you know, you have the experience from the other company already started. So I'll, I'll help you with whatever I, I can and, and we're in it together. So he invested a bunch of money into creating uh, our own software. At that time, the most popular training platform was Train Heroic, uh, but they take about 30% of whatever you make. So it seemed like, I don't know, it seemed like it wasn't worth it. So decided to create our own software, beta test it. And when we posted on our Instagram that we needed about 12 people to beta test the program, the software, we got about 400 replies. And that was kind of my aha moment. Oh, okay, I guess we do have something that's interesting and that people are looking for and that people are interested to learn more about. That's really interesting. So what year was that when you guys started to really invest all of your time into hybrid and start beta testing that? I think that was 2015. Yeah, because I remember So I remember at Barbin when we first wrote about you guys, it was in 2016. And just looking back at the last three years and how much hybrid has grown and how much you guys have grown personally and professionally, like I would love to hear a little bit more on basically your mindset behind scaling, because I think that could be very scary for folks, especially when there is a little bit of uncertainty. So my question for you is, you've mentioned that Hayden was very certain, and then you were a little bit unsure, but then you had your aha moment. From there, has it always been, hey, like this may or may not work, but I'm confident in what we've done so far, so we are going to keep building and building and building? Is that kind of the mindset you've taken on? And if not, how have you approached scaling? Yeah, so, you know, scaling is not for everyone. 
not everyone wants to have a huge business and take on hiring employees or contractors and more and more people to help you, you know, as you grow. It's not for everyone. Um, for us, it is. We, we always, we're all, we, we feel like if you're not growing, you're dying. So we're just kind of trying to expand and grow as much as possible while um, we're in this space and while we're relevant and while the, the space is growing with us. Um, so we kind of just take it one day at a time. I mean, this is, it's a job and it's an area that didn't used to exist. So all, every single role that people have at hybrid for the people that work for us, with us, um, has been kind of made up based on the needs of the company. So usually people start at hybrid doing something, you know, low level, something that we need to delegate, say, for example, answering customer service or packaging or shipping or inputting training programs, right? So that's where people start. And then as they start showing what kind of value they can bring to the business, and that's how they evolve in rankings within the company um, as the needs get increasingly larger. And so... It just depends on kind of what the demands are at that time. For example, um, Alex went from being the gym manager to answering customer service to um, being the person in charge of uh, directing all operations outside of the gym and outside of the online platform to apparel, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, but for us, it, I didn't never anticipated that it would. Uh, grow, I, I knew it would grow, but not at the pace that it did. So the, the thing I always say is that if, if I could do one thing differently as far, if, if you're someone who wants to scale your business, I think one of the most important things is structuring. So organizational structure, just making sure that everything's written. If you have someone who's working for you, everything needs to be contractually written on a handshake agreement. We tend to hire people that are our friends. We're all kind of people that get into this this business are usually young, creative, you know, a little bit more on like the 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 more casual end. But I think that in Spanish there's a there's a saying, cuentas claras conservan amistades, and it means that as long as everything's like set in stone and written, then the friendship can continue successfully. So I would just say, you know, keeping everything in writing, making sure everyone knows what they're doing, what their responsibilities are, um, and then starting to create a, a structural, organizational structural framework right from the beginning. All right, like we need people that can organize, then we need people who can manage, then we need a subgroup of people that can organize this other subgroup of people, you know, yeah. and just kind of start thinking about it that way because if you do end up growing and being huge and you don't have structure, it becomes a shit show. I love that. I love that you kind of detail the game plan for folks who might be on the cusp of scaling. Mm -hmm. But I do want to circle back to kind of that topic. Do you have any tips? So let's say there's a budding trainer in the industry. He's got 20, 30 clients and he wants to grow his business, but he's unsure if he should. Do you have any tips for someone who might be on that idea of like, oh, like, should I scale and hire my first employee to take on more? Or should I just keep doing what I'm doing? Do you have any tips for maybe the trainer, coach, business owner in the fitness industry that's a little bit uncertain mm -hmm. on if they want to scale or if it's even for them? Mm -hmm. I think it depends on, on several things, right? Risks is one thing. So say I'll give you the example of when we decided to open our gym. We didn't need to open a gym because it's not our main source of, of revenue, right? And we knew it never will be our main source of revenue. So 
then why would we open a gym? Well, there's different reasons why we want to open a gym. To um, have a bigger presence in the space, you know, have a brick and mortar always kind of like gives you more, a, a, a better appeal in the eyes of the public that, you know, it's a, it's a real tangible thing. It's a structure. It's, it's um, you know, it, it just makes you seem like you're bigger than you actually are. And I think adds more legitimacy to the business. So for us, um, it was a financial undertaking, especially at that point in time when we were investing so much into our software and growth. So from a risk standpoint, maybe it was a little bit on the, you know, on the riskier side, but we thought that it was, um, it would pay off in the future. So, so that's one thing, uh, just managing risks versus rewards of a particular uh, decision that you want to make. Um, and then, you know, I think you need to have, you need to know exactly when it's a good time for you to bring someone in based on the trajectory of the business. Like, are you, are you really in need of this person? You know, are, how, what's the, um, what's the, the, the interest in what you're selling or the service you're providing? Are people really interested? Are you having like, you have a wait list, you know, do you have the need for this particular, to bring on this particular person? Like, look, there, there's things that we've done that we we kind of like knew for sure that they were the right move and that they were going to move us in the right direction. And then there's things that we've taken risks at, risks in. So that the gym is one. Now we're expanding. We're, we actually just signed the lease for another 5,000 square foot um, area or warehouse where we're going to do our own printing. You know, that's a, that's a risk. I don't know if like that's a good move. We're going to do we're, We bought our own machinery. We're going to do our own printing. We're going to have our own kind of like podcast studio and shooting studio. And it's going to cost us money every month. And I don't know. I'm not sure if like that's the right move, but we're at a point where we're financially stable enough to make that move and take that risk. So it just depends. I think sometimes you do have to take those risks if you want to grow and you have to, you know, make decisions that are a little bit um, out of your comfort zone. Um, and that's, that might be the only way for you to grow. And sometimes it's obvious when you have to expand. But you, the example that I like to bring that's more recent is Victoria's Secret. They, was, they just went bankrupt. Um, they were super successful. They were pretty much monopolizing the entire uh, underwear business, right? Uh, especially for, for girls. Like if you need a bra or underwear, you would go to Victoria's Secret. They were doing just fine. And they decided to uh, get into the market of something for kids. I think it was underwear for kids or an apparel line for kids. And they pumped so much money into that business so much because they, I don't know, maybe it was an ego thing. Like they didn't want it to fail and they end up going bankrupt because of all the money they had to invest in that other business. So it's like, I'm, I'm not saying just keep all your eggs in one basket, but stick to what you know and stick to what works. And even if you want to expand and you want to scale, never take your eyes and your focus from the thing that, that makes you the most money. I think that's an important point. I totally get that. So recently you guys launched Hybrid Apparel, right? Within like the last year, I believe, or mm-hmm. with about a year ago, I guess. Yeah, less. Yeah, less, mm-hmm. right? So my question there, and like this kind of goes off the topic of scaling, is the online business you guys have nailed down. The business and scaling like your space, it sounds like you guys are took a risk on, but you're scaling now and understanding a little bit how to manage that, how to build that. Mm-hmm. Apparel, that's very different. How has that factored into the scaling? Like, did you guys perceive that as a risk? How has that growth been? And like, have there been any lessons you've learned with that side of the business? Um, 
No, I think from a risk standpoint so far, minimal. You know, we, we kind of um, base the amount of t-shirts that we order on like previous months. So very rarely are we left with a, with a ton of um, inventory. Um, and if we are, we also found a way to get rid of it, which is through mystery mystery shirts. So it's it's uh, 15 for one, 25 for two, when shirts are regularly $25. So there's strategies that we've employed to kind of um, avoid having a ton of inventory and avoid uh, losing money on the apparel end. So I don't think from a risk standpoint, it's been big. And again, it's been kind of like a uh, similar to how we started hybrid, like a, a demand thing, right? People wanted to rep our brand and our clothes. So for the longest time, we kind of left that in the back burner and just printed um, designs that we had been, that we had from a long time ago from our first designer. Um, and obviously those weren't anything too special, but people would always want to buy them. So it was actually Alex's idea. He wanted to, he wanted more responsibility and he said that he'd take on the responsibility of having to contact the designer because from a logistics standpoint it's also a lot of work you know you have to come up with a design that you like contact the designer make sure he's doing his job in a timely manner then contact the manufacturers you know it's a whole process Um, but again it's more it was more like a supply demand thing where the demand was high for hybrid apparel style shirts and from a scaling standpoint I think one thing that people fail to do is be observant like we, you get direct feed, feedback from people all the time. You, if you put a shirt, you put two, three different styles of shirts and A, B, and C, and C sells like hot bread and A doesn't sell, you don't make A anymore, right? You stick to C. And for some reason, that's like, people don't get it sometimes. You get immediate feedback based on what people buy, based on the likes you get on Instagram, based on the people who follow you. Feedback is there all the time. We're in a technological world. You get you you get access to data all of the time. You just have to be uh, aware of it, observant, and 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 be able to interpret the data. So that's kind of like the approach that we've taken with our apparel brand, making a bunch of different styles of shirts at the beginning, shirts that were uh, more artistic, shirts that were more basic, uh, shirts that were simplistic, just with a, a small print in the front, shirts with a print on the back, shirts with a print on the sleeve. You know, we tried a bunch of different things and kind of like molded our style to our customer instead of the opposite. Yeah, we didn't force it on the customer. We we listen to what people are buying or pay attention to what people are buying and then we give them exactly that. That is a fantastic tip because I think that often really does get overlooked is mm-hmm. if you, especially if you create content, create anything that goes public facing and you share it, yeah, data is always there. So it's I think it's hard for folks sometimes to draw the line between what they want to do versus what others want from them. So question for you there. Has it always been that easy to look at the data and be like, okay, like this is what's selling really well, let's go with this? Or have there been times where you're like, really want to do this over here that might not be doing so good, but there's a clear answer that this is going to be better, even though you might not be as in love with it? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, how do you kind of navigate that? Have you ever had to? And if so, like who in the hybrid crew is really good at observing the data and really analyzing and seeing like the trends and analytics? I think we all are. Right now, we just brought someone else in. Ian Kaplan, he's kind of like our, our COO, our brain. Um, he's really good at just pulling up any sort of information that we might have on our software, comparing trends, creating charts and all that stuff. But we are all, so Alex, Hayden and I are very intuitive. So it's almost like we don't 
we don't need to see the details. We just kind of like know based on the feedback that we get online, customers, and and obviously sales. Um, but yeah, I mean, there had been times where the answer is just not clear cut. You know, sometimes it's clear, okay, people are not buying my shirt that has a scorpion on it. Maybe people don't like that. People are buying my shirt that has palm trees. All right, I think people like lighter designs, okay? That's easy. But sometimes solutions aren't clear cut and they require a lot of trial and error. They require maybe you investing more money in marketing, maybe trying different techniques that are not gonna that are not gonna work. So if we've run into a similar issue with our hybrid nutrition. We started it about a year and a half ago and it's doing relatively well. We have, I don't know, around twelve or thirteen hundred clients right now. And the clients that we have are real are happy. So the business is doing great. But from a growth standpoint, it hasn't been growing at the same rate as our training or our apparel. And for months, it's been kind of like a, it's created a dialogue between all of us, just trying to figure out different ways that we can, that we can increase our client retention, that we can improve the client experience, um, that we can provide more value to our clients, that we can communicate better, connect better. So that, that it has been a challenge and the solutions are a little bit more intricate and require a lot more more thought and um, studying. So we still haven't we still haven't figured it out. So interesting. Yeah, that is really interesting. Um, well, I'm excited to see how you guys navigate that one as you grow mm-hmm. and kind of thinking about navigating and kind of progressing in an industry like you said that is relatively new that you're also growing with. Where do you see social media going in a couple of years and just kind of like the online presence at all with social platforms? Like where do you see them transitioning to? I feel like we're seeing an interesting change in how people consume content on Instagram right now, for example. And like media in general has been changing over the last five de- years to a decade. So I would love to hear your thoughts, seeing as how you guys have grown so much over the last three years, what your kind of thoughts are for the future and like anywhere you think that it's, a good idea for trainers, coaches, other people starting businesses to adapt right now versus waiting until it's too late and then being later to the game, you know? That's a tough one, man. For one, I don't like to think about it. Yeah, right. It's like, like so it's scary because <laughs> that's our main main form of, of advertisement and it's great. Uh, but I don't know. Like, I really don't know. I have no idea where it's going. It's constantly changing. You know, sometimes man, they're throwing curveballs curve at us all the time. When, and now they remove likes. There's no way anyone could have predicted that. And there's and, and we don't know how that's going to affect anything. For me, I've noticed that my engagement's kind of, it's it's been lower since the likes were have been gone. But I don't know. So th- there's, no, there's no way for us to know where Instagram's going, what their plans with it are or anything. So for me, I think... What I've been doing is just trying to be on every single platform and um, just just trying to have a, a big presence on all of them, especially on the ones that are more stable, like for example, YouTube. I think YouTube is a safe bet. Like it's yeah. been there, it's owned by Google, right? It's not going anywhere. So YouTube is a safe bet. And then just making sure that you keep up with the youngsters. I'm on TikTok now. Oh, damn. You're you're on TikTok. Um, No, I I, I totally hear that. And it sounds like the way you guys have grown and the way you adapt very quickly, I think that's essential because at the end of the day, like you said, like there's no way of knowing that. Mm -hmm. Like them taking away likes, like who knows how that's going to mess up the algorithm Mm -hmm. and the discover. Like we just don't know. Exactly. So 
We're almost coming to the end of our podcast. If you're listening, I'm sorry we didn't talk so much about training. I'm really okay. actually happy that we talked about like the business <laughs> side of things. I think that's not talked about enough. One more question for you to wrap up this podcast. Over the last three, four, five years, what has been your biggest lesson learned in either business, training, or life that you kind of remind yourself every day to keep you going, keep you motivated, and keep you hustling? Um. You know, I, I actually just talked to Hayden about this the other day. Um, I think some people tend to not even s- start doing something because they don't know exactly where they're going. You know, the uncertainty of the future is something that can paralyze a lot of people. And uh, for a while it did to me too. I've, I've been lost. I've been at a point in my life where I just had no idea what I exactly what I wanted to do when a bunch of people around me did. You know, they were starting to be a doctor. They were starting to be a lawyer. My parents were telling me I needed to have everything figured out when I was 19, you know. And it's it's it can be paralyzing. It can be scary. And it can really hold you back. So one change that I made from that time of uncertainty until now, and I plan on continuing to do that for the rest of my life, is dedicating time every day to improve on yourself on one area or more. So whether that's as a person through like self-help book or self-development books or on business, if that's if you're an entrepreneur and that's something that interests you, you want to start your own business, read business books, listen to business podcasts, um, improve on your, your skills or your knowledge in your professional area. If you're a physical therapist and read research journals, you know, stay up to date with the literature because you don't need to know exactly where you're going to end. And I think that as long as you equip yourself with all the necessary tools that you need to succeed, including good communication skills, networking, knowing people, being a good person, being compassionate, empathetic, kind, um, knowledge in business, knowledge in your field, all of that stuff, if you equip yourself as much as possible with all of those tools day in and day out, you'll be able to have way more opportunities that if you just narrowed your focus and let the uncertainty paralyze you from making a decision or choosing a path or continuing to move forward. So for example, I don't know what I'm going to be doing in five to 10 years, but it doesn't scare me. It doesn't cause me anxiety because I know that today I'm doing everything in my power to improve on myself. And I know that whatever I do in five or 10 years is going to be way better than what I'm doing today. I'm, I, I remain optimistic and I just continue to to prepare myself as best as I can for the future. I love that. That is beautiful life advice right there. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for the time. I appreciate you coming on the podcast. We'll definitely have to have a part two following this up with a, more of a training side of things. But for sure. yeah, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. 